We turn to a very interesting uh, passage of Scripture this morning, Ezekiel, uh, chapter 8. And the title of our message today is No Other Gods. Ezekiel, chapter 8. Would you join me as we pray? Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is enough. We need no other thing, no other God, no other idea. We, we have enough in Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you would teach us from your word today, that you would show us that the false gods of this world offer nothing for us. You are the way, you are the truth, you are the life, Lord Jesus, and all that we need, we find in you. We pray in your name. Amen. I want to ask you a question that you might think is a little bit silly. Would you ever worship a tooth? Would you ever worship a tooth? No one would ever worship a tooth, or would they? I don't know if you realize this, but a two-inch long, discolored eye tooth is reverenced by over 400 million Buddhists as the most sacred object on earth. The tooth is supposed to have been reclaimed from Buddha's funeral pyre in 4 or 543 B.C. and was brought to Ceylon 800 years later. Today the tooth sits upon a golden lotus in what is called the Temple of the Sacred Tooth in Kandy, Ceylon. It is surrounded by rubies and flowers, and every year about a hundred thousand faithful Buddhists come to that place and they gaze at that tooth. If you've ever wondered why people become idolaters, it is because they are living in denial. And there are four things that idolaters deny about God that we find in this text of Scripture from Ezekiel chapter 8. First of all, idolaters deny God's power as if He isn't enough for us. In our text, Ezekiel is sitting in his home in Babylon And God comes and gives him a vision of the idolatry of the people of Israel back in Jerusalem. In verse 3 it says that the Lord caught me by a lock of my head, (laughs) grabbed him by the hair, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem. To the entrance of the north gate of the inner court, were the seat of the idol of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy, was located. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the appearance which I saw in the plain. Then he said to me, Son of man, raise your eyes now toward the north. So I raised my eyes toward the north, and behold, to the north of the altar gate was this idol of jealousy at the entrance. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they're doing? 
Think of that. God is asking, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations which the house of Israel are committing here so that I would be far from my sanctuary. But yet you will see still greater abominations. Now the reason why the people of Israel brought idols into the temple is because they were following the custom of the nations around them. Many gods, polytheism, syncretistic worship. They didn't think that abandoning, that they were abandoning God. They were simply adding some other gods to their lives. What were they thinking? Well, if having one God is great, how about adding another? How about having gods that will meet every need in your life? And so, They were doing what the other nations around them did. They were worshiping several gods. But when you add the false gods of the world to the worship of the true God, you are denying God's power. You are saying that He is deficient in some way. He doesn't have what it takes to meet your need. And if you think that God is okay with this, You better read carefully this chapter of Scripture. He describes this idol that he sees and that Ezekiel sees in the temple as the idol of jealousy. The idol of jealousy which provokes to jealousy. So that idol was provoking God to jealousy. Now, when we think of jealousy, we always think of it in an evil sense, right? That the sin of jealousy. There is a jealousy that is not sinful, and that's the jealousy that God has for His people. He will not share us with the false gods of this world. We are called to worship Him alone. He is all we need, because He is completely sufficient. We just sang that. Christ is enough. And I trust you believe that today, that you've come to worship Jesus because you believe that He's enough. You don't need to add any other gods to your life. Someone has made a list of all that we have in Jesus. And notice how sufficient He is. In Jesus we have a love that can never be fathomed. A life that can never die. A righteousness that can never be tarnished. A peace that can never be understood. A rest that can never be disturbed. A joy that can never be diminished. A hope that can never be disappointed. A light that can never be darkened. A happiness that can never be interrupted. A strength that can never be enfeebled. A purity that can never be defiled. A beauty that never can be marred. A wisdom that can never be baffled. Resources that can never be exhausted. And you could go on and on and on describing all that we have in Jesus. So, with all that we have in Him, why would we ever think that He is not enough? Why would we ever think that we need to add something else to our life as if Jesus isn't enough? He is enough. And when you come to Him and you put your trust in Him, you begin to understand, wow, all I need 
is in Jesus. I think again of, of Julia Dory. Remember what she went through and, and their home being robbed? And how as an eight-year-old girl, she says, For as long as I live, I will always know that Jesus is all I need. There it is. Jesus is all I need. Is that your conviction today? Do you believe that with all your heart, that Jesus is all you need? Or do you think you need to add something else to your life to find real contentment? Jesus is all you need. Idolaters deny God's power as if He isn't enough for them. The second thing we notice, idolaters deny God's presence as if He doesn't see us. Look at verse 7. Then he brought me to the entrance of the court. And when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. And he said to me, Son of man, now dig through the wall. Okay, now this is a vision, so he's watching this. Dig through the wall. So I dug through the wall, and behold, an entrance. And he said to me, Go in and see the wicked abominations that they are committing here. So I entered and looked. And behold, every form of creeping things and beasts and detestable things with all the idols of the house of Israel were carved on the wall all around. Standing in front of them were seventy elders of the house of Israel, with Jazaniah the son of Shaphan standing among them. Each man with his censer in his hand and the fragrance of the cloud of incense rising." Then he said to me, Son of man, do you see? Do you see what the elders of the house of Israel are committing in the dark? Each man in the room of his carved images. Notice what they're saying. For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord isn't watching us. The Lord has forsaken the land. He has no idea what's going on in the temple. Really? Really? Interesting. So, not only were they worshipping the idol of jealousy, they were worshipping animals. Like the Egyptians and some of the other nations around them, there were these carved images of creeping things and beasts as if animals could help them. As Paul says in Romans 1.25, they foolishly worship the creature rather than the creator. How ridiculous can you be? Carving these images of animals on the wall and you are worshiping them. And this is whom? Notice who it is. It's the elders. The elders of Israel. Instead of openly and boldly pointing people to the Lord, the elders were secretly worshiping idols in a dark room because they didn't think that God saw them. The Lord doesn't know. The Lord doesn't see what we're doing. He has abandoned the land. So we're just here by ourselves and and He doesn't know. How confused could they have become? Confused about who God is as if He is not omniscient, as if He is not omnipresent. And what's interesting also is that there were 70 of the elders. Now that should ring a bell, right? 70. 
Christopher Wright says that this is a deliberate echo of the 70 elders who accompanied Moses in the ceremony of establishing the covenant at Mount Sinai in Exodus 24. He says here, by jarring contrast, are 70 elders involved in blatant breaking of that covenant. Just a few partitions away from the Holy of Holies. How could they ever think that God doesn't see? He's abandoned the land. He doesn't know what we're doing. Christopher Wright goes on to say, part of the irony is that they could imagine that God could not see them while they were engaged in praying to gods which had eyes but could not see. What they said about God was actually true of the idols they were praying to. God just doesn't see. He doesn't know what's going on. I read about an American Revolutionary War officer by the name of Lafayette. And he was put in prison. And in the door of his cell was a very small hole. And there was a guard that was watching him in that cell day and night. 24 hours a day. Every time he looked at that door, there was an eyeball. He said it was absolutely dreadful. No escape. Always the eye was watching him. The evil eye was watching him. God sees everything. There is nothing that escapes his attention. He sees it all. And the people of Jerusalem, the elders were saying, Oh no, God doesn't know. He doesn't see what we're doing. He's not aware that we're worshiping these animals. How deceived could they be? Now if you look at verse 11, you will notice uh, that the Lord singles out a man by the name of Jazaniah. You're looking for a name for a son? There's a good one, huh? Verse 11, Standing in front of them were 70 elders of the house of Israel with Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them, each man with his censer in his hand and the fragrance of the cloud of incense rising. Now you might wonder, why does he mention this guy? Why does he single him out? I can't say for sure, but it could be because his father was Shaphan. And if it's the same Shaphan who found the book of the law in the temple that had been lost during the days of King Josiah, then Jezaniah came from a godly family because we find three other sons of Shaphan who were godly men. Ahikam was the one that protected Jeremiah from being killed. Gemariah begged King Jehoiakim not to destroy Jeremiah's scroll. And then Elasa, who was the one who delivered Jeremiah's scroll to the Jews in Babylon. So, if it's the same Shaphan, Jazaniah was a rebellious son among that family. Amongst a godly father, with godly brothers, this man strayed from the truth 
and began to worship idols. So there's a lesson to us, right? In some families, there are some that don't abide by the truth. And he was an idolater. Denied God's presence as if God doesn't see us. A third characteristic of idolaters, idolaters deny God's provision as if he doesn't take care of us. Look at verse 14. Then he brought me to the entrance of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. And behold, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. He said to me, do you see this, son of man? You're seeing a pattern here? It's just like God is saying to Ezekiel, do you see? Look at this. Look at what's going on in my house. Do you see this? You're going to see worse things than this. You'll see greater things, greater abominations than this. We can't completely be sure of this, but Tammuz is usually identified as a fertility god whom the Egyptians called Osiris and the Greeks called Adonis. And according to their myths, Tammuz was killed by a wild boar and went to the underworld, and that tragedy brought winter. So if you want to know why there's winter, that's what they believe. And each year then, his wife, Ishtar, would rescue him and would bring the return of spring and the rebirth of nature. So instead of seeing the Lord as the provider of all things through the various seasons of the year, they looked at the false god of this world and they were weeping for Tammuz. And was hoping that springtime would come and that, again, the earth would bear its fruit. Again, I ask, how, how is it possible that the people of Israel could be so deceived? Of any people, they ought to have known better. They had the word of God, and yet they didn't trust that God would be their provider. Here they are weeping for Tammuz, that the earth would bear its fruit again, and their needs would be provided for instead of looking to God, who provides every good and perfect gift from above. I read about Charles Spurgeon one day. He was coming home after a, a day of, of, of heavy labor, tired. And the verse that came to his mind was the verse, my grace is sufficient for you. And so he immediately compared himself to a little fish in the Thames River, apprehensive that if he drank so much water, the river might run dry. And the river said in his mind to the little fish, drink away, little fish. The stream is sufficient for you. Then he thought of a little mouse in the granaries of Egypt, afraid that he might exhaust the supplies and starve to death if he ate from that granary every day. And so Joseph said to the mouse, Cheer up, little mouse. My granaries are sufficient for you. And then Spurgeon thought of himself as a man who was climbing some high mountain to reach its lofty summit and dreading lest he might exhaust all the oxygen in the atmosphere. 
When God himself said, Breathe away, O man, and fill thy lungs, my atmosphere is sufficient for thee. So if God's resources are so vast, and he is our provider, why would we ever doubt? Why would we ever doubt that he would take care of us? Why would we ever doubt that he can provide for all of our needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus? Those of us who are saved, we trust that God's going to bring us from here to glory, but sometimes we, we doubt, is he going to take us through all of life? Is he going to provide for all our needs? Why would we ever doubt? About a week and a half ago or so, we got a text from our daughter Lydia. I mentioned this at Bible study a week ago or so. And uh, she, uh, Julia is six years old, and, and she got up in the morning and she said, Mom, in the Bible it says that people worshipped idols, which was basically like something they made that looked like people dressed up or something, so basically a craft. And then she said, can a craft save you? No, she said. (laughs) That's the heart of a little child. Looking at what people do, what they worship. And it doesn't need to be some kind of a, a wooden statue. It can be money. It can be possessions. It can be power. Can that save you? No. Absolutely not. And yet people, they worship those things as if Jesus isn't enough. I am here to say that He is enough. Because God's Word says that He is enough. And when you know Jesus as your Savior, you understand what that means. That Jesus is enough. There's a fourth thing we notice about idolatry. Idolaters deny God's punishment as if He won't judge us. Verse 16, Then He brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And behold, at the entrance to the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about twenty-five men with their backs to the temple of the Lord, and their faces toward the east. And they were prostrating themselves eastward toward the sun. What were they doing? Worshipping the sun. He said to me, God said to Ezekiel, Do you see this, son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations which they have committed here, that they have filled the land with violence and provoked me repeatedly? For behold, they are putting the twig to their nose. Therefore I indeed will deal in wrath, my eye will have no pity, nor will I spare. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, yet I will not listen to them. Wow. Now the place where the 25 men were worshipping, worshipping the sun, is the inner court 
between the porch and the altar. This is the place where only the priests were allowed to go, so it's quite likely that these idolaters were the priests. <laughs> so you had the 70 elders, and now you got the priests. That's part of the problem in the nation, when you don't have spiritual leaders who are even willing to stand on the truth of God's Word. So here were the priests. And it says that they had their backs to the temple of the Lord. Now we could see that as, as a geographical expression, you know, just how they were uh, standing, but I think it, it illustrates a spiritual condition of the people. They have turned their backs on God, turned their backs on the Lord right in front of His face. One author says this, the word backs can be used of the hind quarter hindquarters of cattle. He says, In bowing down to the sun, these men were literally lifting their backsides to God. The insult was very blatant and breathtaking. It's like sticking your back end out at God. That's what they were doing. Can you imagine the priests who are to intercede on behalf of the people, how they were snubbing God. So in Jerusalem's hour of need, Ezekiel sees the elders in a darkened room, worshiping animals, and a few yards away, out in the sunshine of the inner court, another group is worshiping the sun. God isn't even acknowledged in His own house. But that's only part of the problem. It wasn't just the elders and the priests at the temple who had provoked God to anger. Notice how idolatry had permeated the entire nation. In verse 17, the Lord says, They have filled the land with violence and provoked me repeatedly. So it wasn't just the temple. It was the whole nation, basically. Oh yes, there was a remnant, a small remnant. But by and large... Idolatry permeated the nation of Israel. And what's the first commandment? I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt have no other gods before me. The very first commandment they snubbed. And they worshiped just about anything. Because that's what happens. When you abandon the true God, you don't worship nothing. You worship almost anything. And that's what's happening in our land today. When you abandon the Bible, you abandon the true God, what happens? We're seeing it. You worship just about anything. And the deception of Satan is so real and so powerful that it's hard to believe that people can worship what they do today. Now, there's a phrase here in verse 17 that's kind of interesting. When I read that, you're probably wondering, what does that mean? Putting the twig to their nose. From what I could gather, it, it, it seems to be some kind of an insulting 
gesture, kind of like sticking up your nose at someone. So not only did they stick their back end toward God, they were like, you know, sticking their nose up at God. Just so, so, so blatant was the disregard for God and His holiness. And these people obviously didn't think that God would judge them. They didn't think that God would deal with their idolatry. But look at the end of the chapter, verse 18. Therefore, God says, I indeed will deal in wrath. My eye will have no pity, nor will I spare. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, yet I will not listen to them. What could be worse? What could be worse than to cry out to God and God says, I am not listening. That's how bad it had become. And you know from the Old Testament how God sent His prophets over and over and over and over again. They despised His words. They mocked His prophets until the Bible says there was no remedy. No remedy. What could be worse than God refusing to listen to their cry for help? So here is one of the many warnings in Scripture that it is foolish to play games with God. It is foolish to think that you can just continually, repeatedly, Mock God, mock His Word, despise His commands, and then think that somehow God will just overlook it all and everything will be just fine. God is gracious. But if we continue, like the people of Israel, to turn our backs on Him, what will the result be? It will be judgment. It will be judgment. A granddaughter of Aaron Burr gave her heart to Jesus at an evangelistic meeting. And that evening she came to her grandpa and she said, Oh, grandpa, I wish that you too were a Christian. And he said, When I was a young man, I too went to one of those evangelistic meetings, he said. I felt my need of God's mercy and forgiveness and I knew that I should give my heart to Christ. He said, But I walked out that evening. And I stood under the skies and I looked up toward heaven. I said, God, if you don't bother me anymore, I won't bother you. Can you imagine making a statement like that to God? Then he said, honey, God has kept his part of that bargain. He's never bothered me again. Now it's too late for me to bother him. I'm not suggesting to you that you are given one chance To come to Jesus, and if you turn your back on Him, uh, you'll be forever lost. But what I am saying is that this warning is clear. It is real. There will come a time for those who continue to reject Jesus Christ when it will be too late. God will bring His wrath upon them, and they will forever experience the judgment of God. And that is why the Bible repeatedly calls us to come to Jesus today, right? 
How many times do you see that? Today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts. Don't harden them. If you go to a Bible-believing church and you continue to hear that call to salvation and you continue to spurn it, what happens is your heart gets hard. So will you come to Jesus today? Will you turn from your sin today? Will you cry out for God's mercy today? The false gods of this world cannot save you. They can do nothing for you. Only Jesus can save you. And when He saves you, you will discover that He is enough. Christ is enough for me. Is that your testimony today? That Jesus is your Savior? All you need, you find in Him. That's the good news. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. He offers to you salvation, abundant life. Not a life free from trouble. But you will find that Jesus, He is enough. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for who you are, that you are enough. You are true man and true God. You have given your life for us on the cross. And why would we ever, ever think that salvation is found in any other person than you, Lord Jesus? No other way. No other name. Lord, I pray that we would turn from anything that would rob you, Lord Jesus, of your glory and praise that we would trust in you alone and live our lives for the honor and the glory of your name because you are enough. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done for us. We pray in your precious name.